Welcome to Living Word Church. Let's hear from Pastor Ben as he teaches us from our Pray Like Paul series. We are in this series on prayer, Pray Like Paul, week five. So let me introduce what we're going to talk about like this. There was five college students who went to visit London uh, to visit Charles Spurgeon's church. And so Charles Spurgeon was a famous preacher in London, and he pastored the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And they, they arrived early because they wanted to, to get to see the 5,000-seat the sanctuary where people came from all over to, to hear Charles Spurgeon preach, the prince of preachers. And so they, they, they get there, and they're early, and this person greeted them, this man greeted them, a very friendly man greeted them and said, hey, I'd like to take you on a tour. So he, this man took them on a tour, these young college students, and and as they're going through the tour, he, the, the tour guide asked the young men, hey, would you like to come see the, the, the basement, the furnace room, uh, right underneath the main sanctuary? And so the young man said, sure, let's go check this out. And so they get to the basement, and, and when they get there, there are several hundred people praying fervently for the service that is about to take place. And so as they're in that furnace room, uh, the man who's a tour guide introduces himself and says, hey, I'm Charles Spurgeon. And so I wanted you to see where the power takes place. I wanted you to see where, where, the, where God it begins to move here. It's through prayer. He said, he said, Spurgeon famously said this, my people pray for me. My people pray for me. And this is where the power happens. Several hundred people praying fervently for the service. And so so what should we pray for? What were they praying for that day? What were they praying for at the Metropolitan Tabernacle? I can imagine they're praying for many things, but I think if there's one thing that I think they were praying for leading up to a, a church service that would have been filled with 5,000 people, I think they were praying for souls. I think they were praying for the lost. I think they were praying not only for believers to be encouraged and equipped and sanctified, but I think they were praying for the lost, praying that those that don't know Jesus would be born again, that God would, would draw many people to come to that service that day, that they would hear the gospel, that they would respond by faith, and that they would be born again. And so as we've been thinking about prayers, we've been going through this series, and we've primarily looked at the prayers of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 3, but today we're going to deviate a little bit, and we're going we're gonna to look at we're going to look at a section from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We've talked about praying that we'd have strength to comprehend. We've talked about, we've talked about praying that we'd have faith to believe that, that God is, that Christ is, and that he is able, and that he is able to keep us. That's what we looked at last week. Well, today, I want us to talk about praying for souls, praying for the lost. We have this event coming up on Friday, and I thought it was fitting that we would talk about praying for the lost, that that's what we should consistently pray for. This is why we are here as believers. This is why that after salvation, the Lord just doesn't take us straight to heaven. How many of you have thought maybe that would be a good idea? Hey, you get saved, we go straight to heaven, and we get on with eternity worshiping Christ, worshiping Christ forever, free from pain, trial, and sickness. But he doesn't do that. He saves us. We are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and he, he leaves us here so that we can be salt and light, so that we can be witnesses of the power of the gospel. So I want to talk about praying for souls. And I, 
I thought about this week a section of scripture that I think really highlights, highlights this subject of praying for souls, highlights kind of here are the areas that I think in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul lays out for us the condition of those who are lost. So we'll see the condition of those who are lost, and we're going to see the message we're to preach. And then lastly, we're going to see the power of God to dispel the darkness by the power of the gospel. That's what we're going to see in 2 Corinthians 4. So let's, let's read. This will be the main text we're going to look at this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So as we are thinking about praying for souls, we're going to look at what 2 Corinthians 4 teaches us about the condition of the sinner and the power of the Savior. 2 Corinthians 4 is going to teach us about the condition of the sinner and the power of the Savior. So here's the first thing we will see from 2 Corinthians 4. It should be in your notes, in your handout. Point number one, the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. This is the condition of the sinner. The gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. Paul says there, and if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. That, that word veiled there that the Apostle Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 4, it's the Greek word kalupto. It means to cover, to hide, to conceal. And so the gospel, Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 4, is covered. It's concealed to those who are non-believers, to those who are not born again, to those who are not Christians. The gospel is concealed. It's behind a curtain for them. They can't see it. They don't have eyes to recognize the glory of Christ. They can't see it. The God of this world, it says, Paul says, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. It's, he's keeping the gospel veiled from them. They can't see it. He's blinded their minds. You know, this blindness is one aspect of, of a general blindness that the God of this world has blinded unbelievers. But really, it's, there's more like in the life of a non-believer, there's more like a double blindness. The God of this world is blinding their minds, trying to keep them from seeing the glory of Christ and to pay attention to other things. But there's also an internal blindness that all of us have apart from Christ. This is what Ephesians 4 says, speaking of Gentiles and of non-believers, it says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is where? Is in them. There's an internal darkness. There's an internal blindness. The darkness is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. So there's a double blindness. By nature, we are blinded. By nature, we are hard-hearted. And then Satan 
takes advantage of our natural condition. Satan works to entrench people deeper into their rejection of Christ. This is the condition of those who are not saved. This is a condition of of your life before you came to faith. You were internally blinded. You had an internal rejection by your sinful nature of God and of Christ and of his ways. And then externally, Satan worked overtime to keep you from seeing Christ. And, and what, what does Satan not want unbelievers to see? Well, look, look, look back at the text. To keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That word light there literally means truth or revelation. The word gospel means what? means good news, good news. So, so, so light or truth, light, gospel, good news. Glory means splendor, greatness, radiance, brightness. So in short, Satan works overtime to keep people from seeing the truth of the good news, which is the greatness and the splendor of Christ. He blinds people from seeing the truth about the good news of Jesus Christ, about the glory and the beauty and the majesty and the splendor of Christ. This is what Satan works overtime to do in the lives of those who don't know Christ. This is the condition of those who are not born again. How does he do it? How does he blind the mind? I I think it's unique to consider how does Satan blind the mind of non-believers? Because, listen, people can hear about Jesus. People that don't know the Lord can hear the story of the birth of Jesus, in particular around Christmas and then around Easter. Uh, the, you know, they, they can hear about Jesus, and maybe they grew up in a, in, in a church, but, but they're not really, they're not, they haven't committed to Christ, so they've heard about Jesus. But, but what keeps people from, from seeing the glory, the beauty of Christ? You're here today because you saw the glory and the beauty of Christ. You're here today because that glory it superseded everything else in your life, and so, so you surrendered to him. But the non-believer can't see that glory yet. They can't see that goodness yet. They can't see who they are apart from Christ. They can't see any of that because the devil is a liar. This is how he keeps people blinded. He is a liar. John 8, Satan is a father of lies. Jesus says in John 8, you are of your father the devil. He says that to the Pharisees. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Lies are what Satan uses to keep people from seeing the glory of Christ. You heard the phrase, uh, jack of all trades, but master of none. For that phrase, I can say that about myself. I'm, I'm a jack of all trades, master of none, right? I mean, I think we can all think about that in our lives, but that's one thing that I don't think Satan can say. He may be a jack of all trades, but he is a master deceiver. He's mastered his deception. Satan has mastered one trade. He is a master deceiver. Listen, and he's not just content with deceiving a third of the angels as we see in Scripture. He's not just... He's not just skilled at deceiving angels. He, he is skilled at deceiving human beings. He wants the pinnacle of God's creation. You and I, he wants to deceive and to destroy the image of God in the earth. Look at Revelation 12. And the great dragon was thrown down, the age, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Listen, the deceiver of the whole 
world. The world goes the way of the wicked one. The world goes the way of that ancient serpent from Genesis chapter 3, the one who who brought the original temptation. They go the way of deception. They go the way of the lie of the evil one. This is who Satan is. He's a great dragon. He's a great deceiver. So, so do you know the problem, what the problem is with a lie? Do you know the problem with a lie? So it's not true. That's what's the problem with the lie. It's, it's not true. That's what makes a lie wrong is that it's not true. That's the problem with the lie. You know, most people, most people can catch a lie when they hear it. You ever been around somebody and you just know they're lying through their teeth. I mean, you just, you can immediately see it. I, I know as parents, we can catch it with, with our kids, right? I heard this one story one time of this, this pastor tells a story in his sermon. Um, uh, he had, they, they had directly instructed their kids to, to, to stay out of the refrigerator in the mornings until they get out of bed. And so, so, so they didn't obey. And they had, these are young kids, four or five years old. And, and so they got into the, the milk and the chocolate syrup. And so the kid is pouring the chocolate syrup and making a big mess and chocolate syrup all over their face and and so the kid goes into the bed to wake up the parent, chocolate syrup everywhere. And the parent said, have you been in the chocolate syrup? No. <laughs> you know, we're pretty good at catching lies, are we not? And even whenever the lies aren't that obvious, we, we, we can normally catch a lie because we, we, we have senses. We, we can sense it. We can feel it. We can, we can tell by context clues. But here's the way Satan's lies work. He works to dull our senses. This is, this is a way in which the enemy works to keep people from seeing the glory of Christ. He, he dulls their senses. He dulls their senses. It's, it's kind of like the person that drinks alcohol. It's drinking alcohol. And they drink a little bit of alcohol. And they, they go about whatever, it's, it's an event or it's a dinner or it's a party. They're drinking alcohol. And they continue to drink alcohol. When they first drink, drink alcohol, let's say, you know, it's a three or four hours worth of an event or a party, and they begin to drink alcohol, well, they're okay, right? You know, and they're doing okay with a little bit. And, but, but then what happens if they continue to drink alcohol? Their, their senses begin to be dulled. Perception is not reality in their life right? Judgment is impacted over time. Their senses are dulled. And this is what Satan does with his deception in the lives of those who don't know Christ. He dulls the senses of those who are living their life as if God doesn't exist. And he dulls their senses by escaping through experiences and pleasures and relationships, deception by being lulled to sleep about spiritual realities. This is how The God of this world keeps the minds of unbelievers blinded. He dulls them. He lulls them to sleep. He he tells lies like this, God isn't good. God isn't good. Or or God can't be trusted. Or or God is withholding from us. He tells lies like this, that this life is all that matters. This experience will satisfy ultimately there is, or, or here's another light. People are dulled in their senses toward this. There is no accountability for our actions. Look at our, around the world today. People live as if there's no accountability for their actions. Satan has dulled the senses of people to believe that there's no accountability for their actions. They can live however they want to live. And the glory 
and the goodness and the holiness of Christ cannot be seen. The glory is veiled to those who are perishing. This is a condition of those who don't know the Lord yet. They haven't been awakened to the gospel, to the light of the glory of Christ. The splendor of Christ can't be seen. 1 Corinthians 1 says this about the message of the glory of Christ. It says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So not only is their mind blinded, but the message that they're hearing about the cross of Christ is folly. That word folly means foolishness. They, they, they think the message is foolish. Their senses are dulled. They're blinded to the glory of Christ. The message of Christ and the cross and Christianity is foolishness to them. The good news of Jesus is foolish to them. So what do we do? <laughs> what, what do we do? You know, if you stop and think about it, this is, this is kind of a crazy task. November 10th is a crazy deal, right? Wow, we're up against the wall here, aren't we? We're inviting people that don't know the Lord to come on the property on November 10th. And the people in our life that we know that don't know the Lord, we've been witnessing to them. We're really up against it, aren't we? What do we do? Their their minds are blinded. The message is foolish. What do we do? What do we do? do? What's our response? What what do we do? Paul helps us here. 2 Corinthians 4, the next point is, is what we proclaim is Christ as Lord. The gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. So what do we do? We preach. They're blinded, but we preach. Their, their senses are dulled, but we preach. They don't want to hear the message, but we preach. This is what Paul is saying. He's making the case. Paul says, look, the unsaved can't hear. They can't hear. They don't want to hear. The God of this world has blinded their minds. He's dulled their senses. They can't see the glory or the beauty of Christ. Earthly things, this is what Paul is alluding to, earthly things are more glorious to them than Christ is. But we proclaim Christ anyway. We proclaim Christ anyway. Man, that's the message. Christ crucified. The message is Christ crucified. We proclaim it in spite of market resistance. Yeah, but but there's, there, there really is a temptation to not do that. You know, it, it's counterintuitive. It would make natural sense if Paul said something like this. What if Paul said something like this? It would make sense to a lot of people. Hey, guys, listen. Corinth, Corinth. This is written to the church at Corinth. Corinth is a pagan society like ours, right? Corinth is a pagan society. They worship many, many gods. They have idols on top of idols. It, it might not be good to lead out with a message that Jesus is Lord. So let's figure out a way to backdoor that message. Here's a couple of ideas. This is, maybe Paul would have said this. How about we show them that Christians are cool and church is a fun experience? How about we tell them that Jesus Telling them that Jesus is Lord might offend them, but we'll get there, but let's not lead with that message. It's almost like a bait and switch. We'll make them believe they can have a great relationship with the church on the front end, and then we'll tell them later they have to die to themselves and stop worshiping idols. That sounds like good sense, doesn't it? It really sounds like a lot of what's going on in a lot of churches in in our country and around the world. Uh, Look, it's counterintuitive. They don't want to hear it, but we preach it anyway. Wait a minute, I think we can do a little bit of a better job here. We can, we, can, we, can, we can make the message more palatable. We don't have to talk about sin. We don't have to talk about the fact that there's a hell. 
We don't have to talk about those things. We can backdoor that message. We can come in on the outside because in a pagan society, in a pagan society that worships idols, they don't want to hear that. So we want to be palatable. We want people to come into the door. So we'll, on the front end, we'll, we'll water it down so they can come in. And then later on, we'll tell them, hey, oh, by the way, Christianity is about dying to yourself, repenting of your sins and following Christ and making him the Lord of your life. And you can't keep worshiping false idols like pleasure and self. You know that the most the biggest god, false god of the church of the city of Corinth that day was the goddess Aphrodite. Af- Aphrodite was the goddess, the false goddess of sexual pleasure. She had a, a temple that was built in her honor. There were temple prostitutes who would service the community and those who would travel to worship in that temple. So that culture worshiped at the altar of sexual idolatry. And what does Paul say? He says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, he says here. He says, we proclaim Christ crucified. Listen, and we proclaim Christ as Lord. What does it mean that Christ is Lord? It means that Aphrodite is not Lord. It means that the God of money, mammon, is not Lord. It means that all other false gods and idols are not Lord. There's only one Lord, only one God, and his name is Jesus, and he is the only one worthy of worship, and worshiping any other false idol, any other false false god is damning. That's what it means. That's what Paul is saying here. So the people don't want to hear it because it confronts their idols, but Paul says, we preach Christ anyway. They're blinded. They don't want to hear that Christ is greater than the goddess Aphrodite. But we preach Christ anyway. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, the foolishness of what we preach, to save those who believe. So how has God decided to save nonbelievers? Through the preaching of a message that the nonbelievers will think is ridiculous. Isn't that amazing to think about? I mean, that's not how you would do it. If you're a business person, you want people to think your product is the best thing ever. Like, you got to have my gumbo because I make the best gumbo in Terrebonne Parish. You need my gumbo. Every other gumbo is terrible, right? You need my gumbo. And here's the reason why. It's such a good gumbo. I mean, look at all the, I can give you a list of all the reasons why my gumbo is great. I can give you a list of the reasons why Jesus is great and Jesus is awesome. He'll make your life better. I'll give you a list of all these reasons why. Come and, come and shop at church and get this Jesus for, to make your life better. No, the message of the cross is not Jesus is there to make your life better. The message of the cross is that he died for your sins. So we're not propping up Jesus as this option to add to your life. You know, this is what the message of Christianity is. Is not. It's not add Jesus to your life to make it better. It's, it's surrender, repent, or judgment is coming. And that's counterintuitive. That's how God's chosen to save. The, our, our message is not the problem. The message of Christ is not the problem. It is the answer. It is the answer. And all of you have, who have surrendered to Christ and you came to see who you are apart from Christ, you saw that you were under the judgment of God and you repented of your sins in view of his holiness and you have proclaimed Christ. You believed in your heart, confessed with your mouth. You know that he's the greatest. You know that he's the best. 
He has given you joy and peace. He, he, has, he, 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 compared to every other joy and every other pleasure, nothing compares. So it's true that Christ is better. Christ is the best. But the entryway into that relationship is a recognition of who God is and who we are apart from him. It's faith and repentance. You know, they, they had some of God's prophets, his spokesmen in Israel today, who were speaking lies, things of their own imagination, making up messages, speaking about their dreams as if they came from God, but they were just their own imagination. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah says, verse 28. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat? Do you see that? He's saying all this other fluff and this stuff, it's straw. What has straw in common with wheat, which is the the substance of the word of God? Listen. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. God's word is like a fire that purifies. His word is like a hammer that breaks the hard heart of man into pieces. Our creativity won't change the hard heart of man. Our wisdom won't penetrate into the darkness of the heart of man. Listen, softening the blow of the hammer of the word of God will only serve to produce false converts. A watered-down message, listen, a watered-down message produces a hard heart. It's really a hard message, the hard message of the gospel that softens the heart because That hard heart must be crushed into pieces. And what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 36 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and I put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh that is tender and soft. The hard truth of the gospel that we are sinners in need of a savior, it crushes the hard pride of man into pieces and, and we surrender to Christ and at, at conversion, at the new birth, he gives us a new heart. That's salvation. A soft message who soft pedals the gospel it further entrenches the hardness of heart and makes man believe that they can have religion and not Christ. They can have religion and not change. They can have religion and church attendance and not, 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 not really give up their idols. But the truth of the gospel, it shatters the hardness of the pride of man and crushes that hard heart into pieces. And the prophet Ezekiel prophesied of the day that through the gospel that we would get a new heart not a piece together, hard heart, but a new heart. It's really disconcerting to hear messages today from popular people that we probably listen to on YouTube. You might listen to them on YouTube. I don't know if you, if, if you saw on uh, the Sunday leading up to Halloween, there's a church in Florida that did an Adams family service, an Adams family service. The pastor got up and said that, that we don't, we don't, we don't shy away from Halloween. We embrace the spooky. Adam's family service. And then you got pastors in other parts of the country. That, that was the East Coast. So you go to the West Coast. There's a pastor in the West Coast. They're dressed up like Woody from Toy Story and his wife like Bo Peep. 
for a Sunday service. Not to the kids, not in kids' church. You might feel like, okay, get away with that a little bit. But this is a Sunday service with thousands of people gathered. The pastor is dressed like Woody. I've heard people say I look like Woody. <laughs> if I put some boots on and tucked in my shirt and hiked my pants up a little bit, I, I get it. I get it. But he dressed like Woody on purpose. Listen, while the world is burning and our country is lost, right? Where are the soul-penetrating sermons? Where are the messages that arrest the sinner out of their sin and awaken the believer out of their slumber? Where are the Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeons of our day? Where are they at? Anybody ever heard of Jonathan Edwards? Preached in the early 1700s, born in 1704, I think. His famous message was preached in 1741. He, he, he was used to spark the great awakening in the New England states and the colonies. I'm convinced that the churches, that if pastors begin to preach messages like his famous message, sinners in the hands of an angry God, you'd empty the buildings. Just listen to an excerpt. It's a little long excerpt, but just listen. I'm going to read to you. Listen to Jonathan Edwards, 1741. Some of you had to study it in college. Listen to this sermon. Oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. Tis a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. How dreadful in, is that state of those that are daily and hourly in danger of this great wrath and infinite misery. But this is the dismal case of every soul in this congregation that has not been born again. However moral and strict, sober and religious they may otherwise be. Oh, that you would consider it, whether you be young or old. And now, you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has flung the door of mercy wide open and stands in the door calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners, a day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east, the west, the north, and south. Many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you are in and, and are in now a happy state with their hearts filled with love to him that has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. Wow, where are the Jonathan Edwards of our day that will stand and declare the whole counsel of God's word? We'll speak the truth to people. You know, if we don't speak the truth to people, we don't love them, we hate them. The audience is blinded. They can't see the goodness and glory of Christ. They think the, the, the message is foolish about the wrath of God and hell and eternity. So what do we do? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, you lean into it. You lean into Christ. You lean into that message. We preach Christ anyway. Why? Why? Why preach Christ anyway? Here's the third reason. Here's the third point. Because only God can turn on the light. Because only God can turn on the light. It's not about us and our message we got to preach his message because he's the one that can turn on the light. Look at verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Only God can say, let there be light. Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 4, Satan works overtime to keep people from seeing the truth of the good news, which is the greatness and splendor of Christ. He's telling us that what we have is a foolish message about a glorious Savior. That's what we have. According to the world, we have a foolish message, but our message is about a glorious Savior. And we have an audience that doesn't want to hear that truth. They're fine with some form of self-help religion, but they're not interested in the fire that purifies and the hammer that breaks into pieces the pride of man. So if the customers don't want to listen, what do we do? Paul's making the case here. We've seen it, right? Paul says, preach Christ anyway. Preach him as Lord over every other idol. He's Lord. He's the only Lord. He's the only one worthy of worship. Worship no one else but him. You don't worship him. You're an idol worshiper. He says, preach that message. So why preach a message that people don't really want to listen to? Two reasons. One, because it's true. It's true. And you're a testimony to it, aren't you? Why preach that message? Because it's true. Secondly, why preach it? Because God is the only one who can turn on the light. Now look back to verse 6. Listen to this comparison. Let's, Let's read it again. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is Paul saying here? He's comparing something. He's comparing creation and he's comparing conversion. He's comparing what happened at the beginning, and he's comparing what happens in the heart of those who were born again. This is amazing what Paul is doing here. He's saying, do you remember when God said, let there be light? The word of God, we can see, it says, God said, let there be light, and when there was darkness, God spoke light into existence. In that same way where God spoke light out of darkness, it's the same thing the same type of thing that happens when the mind of the unbeliever is darkened internally and externally in the mind from external sources in the mind through the blinding of Satan, God, through the power of the gospel, breaks through and says, let there be light. And that light of the gospel shines in the heart of man and creates something new. Do you see that? That's a powerful picture. The power of creation when there's nothing but darkness and God says light It's the same picture of what happens at salvation. It's amazing. Paul points to God creating light out of darkness. And the truth is is that only God can create light. That's the point. Only God can create light in the beginning, and only God can create light in the heart of a dark sinner. Only God. What does that tell us? It tells us that salvation is of God. It's God's doing. It's not our message. It's not the message we make up to not offend people. It's it's that we would be faithful to preach his message because he alone can turn on the light. He says this is the prescription that will save. Preach that message because it's through that message that I will turn on the light. It's not by our persuasiveness. It's not by having the right words and the right atmosphere. It's not about any of that. It's a message about the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and Christ is the only means for justification and salvation. We preach that message, and just like at creation, God will turn on the light in the heart of a human being. Only God can do that. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, 
But what? God gave the growth. Who makes your plants grow? Is it the miracle grow? Is it the water? No, it's God. It's the sun. And I know last time I've checked, none of us have control over the sun, right? <laughs> God's the one that gives the growth. Apollos watered, but God, I planted Apollos watered, God gave the growth, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. It's, it's not about us. That's what Paul is saying in this section. We don't talk, it's not about ourselves. We don't preach ourselves. We're, we're nothing. Only God gives the growth. Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is what God alone can do. And so therefore, he alone gets the glory. And I I, want to pivot here, right here. We're we're, we're concluding. I want to pivot here. Salvation is what God alone can do. So because he's the only one that can turn on the light, he's the only one that gets the glory. And I want to say this. Listen, the Lord gets glory when sinners repent. The Lord gets glory when sinners repent. It pleases the Lord when sinners are saved. Do you believe that? It pleases the Lord when sinners are saved. I think so often we look around at our world today and we look at especially wicked people in the Middle East or in New York City or in Russia or in New Orleans. Right? We look at wicked people doing wicked things And we forget that it pleases the Lord to save sinners. He gets glory through the salvation of sinners. The ancient city of Nineveh was a wicked city. I don't don't know if there's any other comparison to how wicked they were. Maybe so, but they were an evil city. They were known through history to be a bloodthirsty people who loved violence. They loved killing. They, they, They were hungry for violence, hungry for blood. And this was the history of the city of Nineveh. Do you remember Jonah? Nineveh? Jonah? Did Jonah want to go to Nineveh? No. You see, I, I think there's kind of two thoughts around Jonah going to Nineveh, right? Some people think that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was scared of Nineveh. I think that may be a part of it. They were, some, they were a violent people, history tells us. But I also think Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he didn't like them. He didn't want them to repent. And you read, later, you read later whenever Jonah, when the people repent, Jonah says, I knew, God, that you were merciful. And I knew that you would grant them mercy. So you see the heart of hatred in his heart towards evil people. So we remember his reluctance. He despised the evil Ninevites. He saw their wickedness. And listen, he saw their wickedness and would rather see them judged than saved. God tells Jonah to go. So what, Jonah, he runs, he runs, he runs. And you know, Jonah, Jonah could have thought, Jonah could have thought, surely they won't listen. They're blinded to the truth. They will only despise this message. And surely Jonah could have thought that. I think he did think that. And so he said, I'm going the other way. I don't like them. They're not going to listen. I'm going the other way. They need to be judged. They need to get judgment. They don't need salvation. He runs the other way. And after much turmoil, he finally goes, he repents and and he finally goes and preaches a message. Listen to what Jonah said. Jonah 3, verse 4 says, Jonah began to go to the, the city, going a day's journey, and he called out. Here's his message. Some of you think, man, Pastor Ben, you need to preach like Jonah. You'd be done a lot quicker. Here's his message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Wow, done. 
Close your Bibles. Let's go eat lunch. I mean, what did, what did, what did Jonah say? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight words. In eight words, what did he say? He says, judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. And listen, and the people of Nineveh believed God. I'm telling you, they didn't believe because Jonah was a passionate preacher in his eight words. They didn't believe because Jonah, they could tell he wanted to be there. They, didn't, they, didn't, they believed because God turned on the light. And God takes joy in saving sinners. And he just wants us to open our mouth. He wants us to preach. Jonah, just go preach. Preach the message. And they repent from the king to the cattle. Everybody repented. Jonah preached a foolish message. Judgment is coming. God turned on the light. Remember at, at, at the end of, of the story of Jonah, he's sulking and he's complaining. Uh, and, you know, God gave mercy and the Lord wanted to give an illustration to Jonah about how he feels about sinners. And he makes a plant grow up over Jonah and the plant is protecting his head from being sunburned, and then the plant withers and dies. And, and listen to what God says to Jonah at the end. He says, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? I know you're angry about the plant being, 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 being destroyed, but don't you get it, Jonah? I love people. I love the wicked people. I want them to be saved. I want mercy over judgment. Listen, the heart of Christianity is forgiveness. Though our message is not popular and it's, it's not what they want to hear, and we must be faithful to preach his message of, of holiness and repentance and truth and salvation in Christ alone and the rejection of all other idols, may we never forget that in the midst of preaching that to people who don't want to hear it, who will ridicule and who will mock, the message of Christianity is about forgiveness. The heart of Christ is mercy over judgment. Listen, God judged his son in order to save. He judged his son in order to save, and may we not get this wrong. The sinner must know he is a sinner, but the sinner must also know that God forgives sinners. God forgives sinners. So what have we seen so far as we conclude here this morning that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. Those who are perishing don't want to hear that reality. They don't have eyes to see the glory of Christ. But we don't stop preaching. We're faithful. We don't water it down. We don't, we don't chisel down the message to make it more palatable. We don't sand down the rough edges. No, we preach it with boldness and compassion, but we preach it because we trust the word of God to do its work, not our creativity or ingenuity, or we think we have a better idea than God. No, we, 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 we preach his message. We preach Christ as Lord. We preach a foolish message about a glorious Savior. Why? Because only God can turn on the light. And listen, the Lord delights when sinners repent. The Lord delights when sinners repent. Luke 15, 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons 
who need no repentance. More joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. That's the heart of our Savior. So, here's what I want to do as we conclude this morning. I want to turn this sanctuary into Spurgeon's boiler room for a moment. Can we do that? Let's end praying for souls. So just shift in your mind. It's 1103. I preached for less than 45 minutes. 55 seconds and counting. Shift in your mind for a moment. Let's think, let's think for a moment. We have this event coming up on November 10th. We have people that we want to invite to it. You have people in your life that don't know the Lord. Just why don't you just bow your heads and just think for a moment. Just ponder for a moment those in your life that don't know the Lord. Whether it's people in your job, might be a spouse, a friend, somebody that you you see at the grocery store on a regular basis. Get them in your mind. Think about them for a moment. And think about the truth of what God's word says. The truth of God's word tells us that that there is a heaven for all of those who are his. For all of those who have repented and placed their faith of believed in the heart, confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. Heaven belongs to the righteous. But hell and eternal punishment belongs to all those who have rejected the only means for forgiveness. That hell is not temporary. It's not purgatory. It's not just I'm here for a little while and somebody can pray me out after I die. No, hell is forever. Think about that reality. And now, Lord, I pray that you would touch our hearts with that reality, that we would see the faces of those that we know. We'd see the faces of those that that we are praying for, those three people that we've targeted over the last several months. Lord, let us see their face and let us be burdened with compassion for them. Lord, because we know that you desire to save sinners. You judged your son so that you could save, in order to save. And so, Lord, we pray for those who don't know you. Those that are in our family, we pray for the spouse that we're living with that, that doesn't come to church and you're, we're coming by ourselves week in and week out. God, we pray that you would do a miracle in their life, that the hammer of the word of God would, would crush their heart and that their eyes would be open and that, that their senses that have been dulled to the beauty of Christ, that, that they would see Christ and that they'd be born again and we can come and worship together as a family husband and wife together worshiping. God, we pray for that child of ours that doesn't know you, that is strayed from you, that is living a life of worldliness, that is worshiping many idols, the idols of pleasure and sexual sin and drunkenness and whatever, drugs, whatever the, the idols are, they're pursuing, they're not pursuing Christ, they're pursuing pleasure outside of Christ, and Lord, I pray that you would awaken their eyes. There are some that have heard the gospel. They've heard it, they've heard it, they've heard it, and their hearts are still callous. God, in a moment of time, that seed that's been sown over and over and over and over and over and over again, in a moment of time, 
you can cause growth. You can cause growth in our children's lives. They would be awakened to the gospel. They would repent and believe, and the light would come on. Lord, may it be so in the lives of our children. And God, we pray for November 10th. God, we don't know who's going to come. Is it going to be 10 or is it going to be 500? I have no idea. But you do. And whether it's a few or as many, God, we pray that the right people at the right time would be there. And as the gospel is preached, that they would respond to faith in Jesus Christ. For the glory of your name. We commit that time to you. Lord, it's not about us or our glory. It's about your glory. May it be so. Burden our hearts. Burden my heart. Burden all of our hearts for those in our community that don't know you. We commit these things to you. We intercede for the lost. Now, Lord, there may be some here this morning that have not surrendered to Christ. There will be some here right now that have heard this message and they, they're hearing it and the chisel of the word of God, the hammer of the word of God is chiseling away, is cracking that hard heart right now. And the Holy Spirit is convicting them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Got to pray that they would turn and repent. If there's anyone here like that with your head bowed, is there anybody like that? If that's you, if that's you, surrender today. Surrender to Christ. Turn to him. Don't leave this building. Don't leave this moment, this time, without surrendering to Christ. It's just as simple as Romans 10. Believe in your heart. Jesus is God. He was raised from the dead. And you will be born again. God will take out your old heart spiritually and give you a new heart with new desires to serve God. It may not all make sense right away, but there'll be a change internally and you'll desire righteousness and Christ and his word. May it be so today for everyone that's here that's never surrendered to Christ. But we commit these things to you. And we pray them in the name of Jesus, who is mighty to save. You are mighty to save. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.